Good morning. Um, good, good morning. It's good to be with you. My name is Dan Lightnin. I'm the campus pastor here at Holy Word. And right now, if you're just joining us, uh, you're in, we're in the middle of a series in the book of Nehemiah called The Joy of the Lord is Our Strength. And last week, we looked at the mission that Nehemiah had that he shared with his people. This week, we're sharing his story from the perspective of, of the people who are working with him. And we're going to see how God fights for his people, and he fights for you and me too. And uh, I I pray that you're empowered with the Word of God, and that you're empowered with God's strength to take on the mission that's ahead of us as a congregation, as an individual. Um, A short background, we heard the background last week, um, but this week I'm going to get into it just a little bit so we can understand the full context. Again, um, the story of Nehemiah happens around... We're guessing four to 500 B.C. Uh, this happens after the Babylonian captivity, a major event in Jewish history that you probably have heard about in the history books before called the Diaspora. A kingdom came in called the Babylonians around 600 B.C. and they uh, invaded Jerusalem. They sacked the temple, which was the hub of, of spirituality and religion and worship of God for the Jewish people. Um, they completely destroyed it, uh, destroying the city, taking away much of their heritage And the people were scattered across the known world at the time. It was called the Diaspora. Well, over the the years, about 100 or over 100 years after that event, the people began to trickle back. Uh, Just as God had prophesied um, through his prophets, there would be people that would return to the city under the reign of a man named Cyrus. Uh, And the nation would be able to start to rebuild their city, but not really all the way. You have to understand, this city and these people were extremely vulnerable. And I hate to make uh, light of the events this last week, the tragic events in Las Vegas. But think about that feeling for just a second. I had somebody come to me this week and they said, um, you know, I, I don't know how to feel about going to public events anymore. Or being out in the open, right? And maybe you feel that way too. There's a, there's a feeling after events, and we've had this from Columbine to 9-11 to every shooting up to this one. We've had this feeling afterwards for, for a while as an American people, a personal vulnerability. Maybe you feel that too right now. The nation of Israel at this time especially was feeling that personal vulnerability They were a little pipsqueak nation on the world scene, and these huge empire rulers would be coming in from Artaxerxes to to Alexander the Great pretty soon, and they were defenseless. Their city was in shambles. The the great city of David, remember that's the name when David was ruling around 1000 B.C.? That was just a shell of itself now, and the walls were destroyed, the temple was gone, and so not only were they... Um, economically and ethnically depressed, but these people didn't have a center for their worship. They were spiritually alienated in a way because their temple, although they were rebuilding it, was still vulnerable. The walls around their city, Jerusalem, were in ruins. This is now the narrow context of the story of Nehemiah. This is where Nehemiah comes in. After a couple of returns to Jerusalem by the Jewish people, Nehemiah hears news. He's not in Jerusalem. He hears news 
that the walls in Jerusalem are destroyed and they're not being repaired. He has a position in the government of the king of Babylon. His name is Artaxerxes at this time. He has a position in this kingdom that's the cupbearer to the king. And some, some commentators say that this position isn't just holding a cup up to the king and offering him something to drink, but it was, it was a trusted position. There was trust between the king and, this, and his cupbearer because the cupbearer was the uh, controlled compliance the, that, would, that would control what would be in the king's cup. And so this was, uh, this was a very, um, I'm going to say, uh, close position, respected position, mutual respect. He comes to the king, this king that's ruling over this entire empire, and he comes to him with a sad face and he says, King, my city that my people live in is in ruins. Can I have permission from you to take a leave of absence from my job to go back to Jerusalem to lead the rebuilding of the city walls for my people? And he's brave enough to say this, too. He goes to the king and he says, and can I have material, too? Can I go through one of your governors or one of your tributes' lands? And can I take some of the forest from him to help rebuild the gates and the walls? And guess what? The king says, yes. Wow, God is working through even the government at that time and the leaders of that time that don't believe in him to bring about his kingdom. That's going to be the theme throughout the whole Bible. So Nehemiah gets permission. He goes back to Jerusalem. The, the book says, and he writes in the first person, by the way. This is like a personal journal that he's keeping. He says that he took three days before he even made any suggestions. And at the night of the third day, he went out and he looked around all the walls, evaluating everything that needed to be done. And finally, he presented the plan to the people of the city. And it's there that we learn that the people begin to rebuild the city according to the plan that Nehemiah prays about and that he puts into action. However, just like with any plan, there are challenges. First of all, there's the haters. Do you remember hearing about them last week? Their names were Sanballat, uh, Tobiah, I call them uh, Sorry Sally Sanballat, who keeps saying, what are you doing over there building those walls again? Do you think that you're going to worship in that temple in a day? And then uh, trash-talking Tobiah comes and he says stuff like, a fox could jump up on that wall and it would crumble. And so they are, they, they, they're, they're, comp- they're competitors in the area and they don't want to see Nehemiah or the people succeed. It's at that time that Nehemiah keeps reminding his people to pray and keeps on reminding them to build. Well, they keep on praying, they keep on building, they get the wall about halfway up. And then in Nehemiah chapter 4, it says this, verse 7, But when Sambalit, Tobiah, the Arabs, the Ammonites, and the people of Ashdod heard that the repairs of Jerusalem's walls had gone ahead and that the gaps were being closed, they were very angry. They all plotted to come and fight against Jerusalem and stir up trouble against it. In fact, up to this time, they had even been spreading rumors um, that Nehemiah was rebelling against the king. Rumors that got people on their side Although the truth was what? The king was the one that gave him permission all along, okay? So uh, fake news isn't so new. Um, They all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and stir up trouble against it. We prayed to our God and posted a guard day and night to meet this threat. Meanwhile, the people in Judah, and when it says the people in Judah, it's referring to the Jewish people that are rebuilding the wall. This is the people in the area and within the city, said... The strength of the laborers is giving out, and there is so much rubble that we cannot rebuild the wall. 
Also, our enemy said, before they know it or see us, we will be right there among them, and we will kill them and put an end to the work. Then the Jews who lived near them came and told us ten times over, wherever you turn, they will attack us. Therefore, I, Nehemiah, stationed some of the people behind the lowest points of the wall at the exposed places, posting them by families with their swords, spears, and bows. After I looked things over, I stood up and said to the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the people, Don't be afraid of them. Remember the Lord, who is great and awesome, and fight for your families, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. When our enemies heard that we were aware of their plot, and that God had frustrated it, we all returned to the wall, each to our own work. Take notice, uh, you have it there in your service folder, you saw it up on the screens, of three things. Number one, look at the external threats at this time to this project. Did you catch them? The opponents of the project, the opponents of the people, the opponents of God's plan to rebuild through this leader, through this plan, and his people were very angry. That means that this is personal. They're taking this project personally, and they are angry about the very fact that they've gotten halfway up this wall. And that anger turns into what? Plotting together. They're plotting together to go fight them in the streets, fight them in the courts, fight them in the news, fight them everywhere to bring down this plan and to fight personally against Jerusalem and stir up trouble against it. That means they're going to do everything they can to stop this project and nothing will stop them in their minds. We're going to get to verse 9 and what Nehemiah's response is, but look at that external threat. They come from the leaders in the area. However, that external threat is going to start to frustrate the Jewish people internally. Okay? Look at this. You see the um, external threat of anger, violence, and undermining. Number two, notice the internal threats. The people, the workers, they become tired. The strength of the laborers is giving out. And what's happening around them as they work? Have you ever seen that happen on your desk before with the papers? It just kind of appears there like that, right? And as you become more tired, it seems like the papers or the emails come flying in more and more. And now, psychologically, if you've ever been in that spot where you grow tired at your work, and maybe it's not just a day at work, but a season at work, and the work grows higher and higher and higher, the schoolwork goes higher and higher and higher, you become demoralized, don't you? And you get to the point that you finally say, I can't do this. And that's the point. They couldn't do this. None of them could do this. They are a tiny pipsqueak nation on the face of the earth. And now world powers around them, much stronger than them. These guys had the weapons. These guys had the walls to defend themselves are saying, you can't succeed. And now here's the worst part. Their own people, the Jews that live near them, came up to them and said, wherever you turn, they're going to attack you. Now their own brothers and sisters and the people living in the area that aren't exactly rebuilding the wall are what? Are telling them, you're not going to be able to do this because they have this objective view. Then they say, you're a little people and you're not going to do this. Now, I've experienced this before too. Um, I have had friends of mine tell me 
Okay, I, I'll tell you a quick story. I, I played tennis in high school, and I, one week, I, I, I sat in for, or I played for the number one person on the team. His name was Paul, a friend of mine. Um, Paul was our number one player, and he got hurt. And so who had to play number one that week? I had to step in for him. And that week just happened to be the week that he got injured, that we played Brookfield Academy, which I know means absolutely nothing to you. But Brookfield Academy is basically the school where kids are born with tennis rackets in their hands, and they are rich kids that have had tennis lessons their whole life, right? And so now here I am, maybe my second year of playing tennis, and I'm going up against um, Brookfield Academy, and on top of that, Brookfield Academy's number one this year. The news spread across our campus on our school that they were coming, and their number one player was within the top five in the junior circuit in the U.S., okay? He had gone to the USTA Junior Championships the year before, and so people started saying, listen, there's a big matchup this week. This, this really good tennis player is coming, and even my own friends, the ones that had never come to any of my tennis matches, you know what they said? What time's your tennis match? And I said, you've never asked me that before. You've never come to any of my matches. And they said, yeah, but Brookfield Academy's coming, and this kid is ranked number five in the, in, in the nation. I said, you have baseball practice during that time. You don't want to come, do you? And they said, we do want to come. I said, why? Because we want to see him beat you. <laughs> and so Doug and Josh and a couple other buddies that should have been at baseball practice came to watch me lose. And they told me before the match, clearly the day before at lunch, that they were going to come to the match and watch me lose. I wanted to say, they said, do you think you're going to get a point off him? I said, I want to get a game. I want to get a set. I want to get three sets off of him. The match was done in 15 minutes. It, was, it felt like 15 minutes. It might have been 20 minutes. I don't know if I remember getting a point off the guy, and he was only this big. So, <laughs> anyways, the point is this. How demoralizing is that to go into competition or even into this building project knowing that even your close friends are against you? So, they're set up psychologically to lose. They're set up uh, physically to lose. And so, Nehemiah says this to his people. Look at Nehemiah's reply. That's the third thing to notice out of this first section. Verse 9. Read it with me. But we prayed to our God and posted a guard day and night to meet this threat. Verse 13. Therefore, I stationed some of the people behind the lowest points of the wall at the exposed places, posting them by families with the swords, spears, and bows. And verse 14, don't be afraid of them. Remember the Lord, who is great and awesome, and fight for your families, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. Nehemiah meets the external and the internal challenges by praying and by posting. Okay? He prays, and the power of the prayer, and this is the key, is not dependent on him or his formula or saying this is the way that you should pray if you really want God to hear. No, that's not the way. The power of the prayer relies completely and solely on the one who is picking up on the other end. Because Nehemiah says he is the one that is great and awesome. And he says he's the one that frustrates the plots of Sanballat and Tobiah, and all of these nations around. Do you see where the prayer lies? And the power of the prayer, as you talk to God, doesn't depend on you. It depends on his strength and his goodness as the papers pile up. 
as the responsibilities around the home become more and more. Um, as you work to fight for a good marriage, a good relationship, and good friendships, the prayers that you pray depend on him. That's why, number one, he's praying. And number two, this is the important thing to see throughout the book of Nehemiah, that his prayer isn't met without in, with, with inaction. It is met with action, and he posts, and he plans Nehemiah believes this, that when you pray to this great and powerful God who can do anything, frustrate the plans of even the enemy, you also are praying and to this God that uses people and plans. In fact, people and plans might be his answer to your prayer. And you, Nehemiah, and your people may be the instrument, his plan A, B, and C, to answer the prayer. So as you pray, plan. And as you plan, pray. Because he can, not just always, but he can use people and plans. And he did in the story of Nehemiah. And so he posts, um, has it ever occurred to you that you are part of the prayer plan that you're asking God for? A man prays for resolution at work. As the stress of work and uh, piles up, and as he cannot give enough time to possibly do all the things his boss asked for him, he starts to cut away at the time that he spends around personal devotion, the time that he spends at church around God's people, thinking in his mind the whole time, God's going to resolve this. I'm going to pray to God. God, take away the stress. God, take away this feeling of unrest. Well, all along, as he prays, has he thought about perhaps as I pray for there to be peace in my life, that I'm going to put this in God's hands. And I'm going to take away time from my work to find that peace that I'm praying for in personal devotions, in the devotion video, in time around God's word with his people. And there he finds that his priorities have changed completely and that he, to have peace at work with everything that's happening, needs to have that peace with God, that God is great and awesome and frustrates the plans of the enemy. Another example, a young woman who's new in her career, and she's just starting out. She has little money. She prays for more money. But has it ever occurred to her, as she prays for more money, and as she cuts away from giving to the things that she knows are important, has it ever occurred to her that God gives her a promise in her word, as she prays, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And as she has little money, she becomes more generous. Not because it's a money thing, but because God, through her prayers, is changing her heart to think about the kingdoms of heaven instead of her kingdom. And then he blesses her throughout her whole life and takes care of her physical needs, just like all the promises in the Bible say. A mother prays for her son because her son is falling away, but has it ever occurred to that mother, as she prays fervently, and oh, she prays fervently, has it ever occurred to her too to take that prayer that she prays, put it in a text message, and send it to her son? As you pray, plan, and as you plan, pray. Um, And then leadership-wise, connect group leaders, you're in the building today. As you pray for the cancer patient, as you pray for the thing that, that you took the prayer request for, Are you planning along with them to write the card, to make the visit, to make the casserole for the family? 
And you, leaders in the congregation, you're here too, elders, chair people, pastors. As you pray for the inactives who aren't here with us, are we reaching out to them, taking along each other, and encouraging them to come back to church with our voice of love? Okay, the work is way too much. Even that much that I said is way too intimidating for us to do on our own. And that's the point of the story of Nehemiah. But the, but the wall wouldn't be just built by the people. You see what Nehemiah does. This is the plan that he puts into practice. Verse 16, From that day on, half my men did the work, while the other half were equipped with spears, shields, bows, and armor. The officers posted themselves behind all the people of Judah who were building the wall. Those who carried materials did their work with one hand and held a weapon in the other. And each of the builders wore his sword at his side as he worked. But the man who sounded the trumpet stayed with me. Then I said to the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the people, The work is extensive and spread out, and we are widely separated from each other along the wall. Wherever you hear the sound of the trumpet, join us there. And then say this one with me. This is the theme. Our God will fight for us. Nehemiah's plan was simple. And God directed it because he was the one that was talking with Nehemiah through this, and Nehemiah was talking to God. Nehemiah's plan was to protect the people so they can work in peace. That's going to be a key thought. Because if we're going to work in peace and have peace ourselves and our calling in life, we need to have a piece of protection. This is what Nehemiah does. Number or A, he gives a bodyguard to each one of the workers at the wall. If you're working and you're constantly looking over your shoulder, wondering if you're going to get slapped on the back of your head, you're not going to work very well. Well, they had enemies that were going to attack at any moment. So think about the peace that these workers had as they built the wall, to have a soldier stationed behind them. The enemy was defeated because they had one that would stand behind them. B, Nehemiah gives each worker a weapon. Um, the Hebrew is um, tough to translate here, but the, the thought is this, that there would be a weapon in the hand or on the side of the workers. So not only would they have a guard posted behind them as they went about their work, but they were ready at any moment and prepared because they were equipped by a leader with a plan. And then see Nehemiah himself. Did you catch this? Nehemiah said, I will stand above the whole project looking over the project, looking at the enemy in the distance. And who does he keep by him? He keeps by him a trumpeter. The trumpeter, if Nehemiah would say attack, the trumpeter would blow that trumpet out and everyone, the workers who had a weapon on their side and the guards that were posted would in unison attack the enemy. Now think about working in peace when you have a plan and God has given you a person. Nehemiah was their answer to the plan. And he was laying out that plan for his people so his people could finish the wall. Do you want to know what happened in the end? The wall got finished in 52 days. Because, why? Say it with me. Our God will fight for us. I want to tell you how amazing it is that they finished the wall in 52 days, first of all. Um, to give you perspective, we live in the 21st century. We have modern technology. 
Um, we have earth movers, okay? We have architects that go to big schools. And it's taken us 576 days so far to rebuild the bridge outside of church. I counted it day by day this week as part of my sermon study. What was Nehemiah's advantage? No, it wasn't that the modern city government wasn't invented yet. His advantage was what? Say it with me. Our God will fight for us. That would be impossible to do without God, to build a a wall that would fortify a city 52 days. But it happened. That's Nehemiah's story up to this point, and you'll come back next week to hear the end of it and how the people worship God. Do you know that God has protected your life? Because there was a man that came through those city walls on a donkey. And there were palm branches that were put down in front of him. And the people at that time, when they saw this man come through those walls five, six hundred years later, they called him their king. And they said, we have our kingdom back. But not in the way they thought that they had their kingdom back. They called him the king. They worshipped him like the king. And they thought they had their city of David back. That man stood in the shadow of the temple that week that he rode in. And he said this. He said, destroy this temple and I will raise it in three days. Wrong thing to say to the Jewish people. You don't talk to a people who have gone through Invasion after invasion after invasion had their walls knocked down, had to be rebuilt, their temple knocked down once, knocked down twice, they had to rebuild it again. And then you hear this king that is so popular talk about what? Knocking down, no, sorry, what happened to him? Yeah, you don't talk to that people that way. But he wasn't talking about that temple, the bricks, or that city, its walls, was he? When he went to the cross for you, he was the person and he was God's plan. He was the person that God chose to live a perfect life in your place because you have doubted that God is awesome, that God frustrates the plans of the enemy. And I have doubted that God can do great things through this person, me, through this congregation, Holy Word, and I have. I've spoken that way and I've planned that way. But that man that went through the city gates and said, destroy this temple, I'll rebuild it in three days, he took all of that doubt of mine on him on the cross. He was crucified on a Roman cross, it says, for the sins of the whole world, to forgive Pastor Dan, to forgive you. And then he did a rebuilding project, not in 52 days, but in three. God raised him from the dead. And the Bible says this, that because he is alive today, that he's alive in his people. And the New Testament refers to his temple as what? You who believe in him. Your body, your time, your talents, your abilities, you're the hands, you're the feet of the very one who died and gave his life for you for free at no cost. 
And so that's why Paul writes the way that he does. Make your lives a living sacrifice. You have a place in the wall. In chapter 3 of Nehemiah, we didn't get to it in this series, but everybody took part in it. Did you? That, that means, and it, it's interesting that they took a whole chapter. It's really boring, a bunch of names you can't pronounce. But pastors and politicians and businessmen in the neighborhood and, and whole family units. It even says some daughters joined in. So men, women, their sons, and their daughters were joining in in the building of the wall. You have one that has given you his life. You have one that says, I've given you my spirit to live in you so that you will make an impact in this world and bring people the message of Jesus through your love, and this is how we'll do it. Jesus has given you a new life, and so three takeaways to finish. Number one, because Jesus rebuilt my life, I will pray for my leaders. Nehemiah's decisions... They weren't easy, and they were human decisions as he prayed. Um, These are things that he thought as a strategic planner would work. Do you think he was a target? He was a target from external threats the whole time. Do you think people doubted when he came in? Yeah, even his own people doubted. The people that you have put into positions and leadership at your local congregation or maybe even in the home, I'm talking to you daddies out there, you mommies in a single home, God has given you a position of leadership to be the voice of God in the lives of the people. And so when we at pastors plan, and when we board members, and, and your chairperson at congregation, when we put together a plan, we'll talk about the plan, but more than anything else, we want to be the Nehemiahs for you. Not in a way that says you've got to do what we say, but in a way that says what are we doing here to bring the life-saving message into your heart, into your home, and into this community and the communities around where you live. Pray for your leaders because they need your prayers. Number two, pray for the plan. I just had a conference with other circuit pastors this last week, and one of the pastors in the Dallas area is an expert planner for churches, a very good planner, and he said something kind of interesting. He said, when it comes to planning your church, plans are kind of like the government. There's no good one, but you've got to choose one and go with it and pray through it. The plan that we leaders here at Holy Word have for you and for our congregation is pretty simple. We call them the four B's. But in summary, we ask that you're in church every Sunday because you just heard a message that you can take with you this week as you go through life. We gather together around God's word and we get forgiveness of sins like we will in a moment in the Lord's Supper. This is the place that we do it, so we want you to be here once a week. We want to have you in the word of God so that you're a self-feeder in devotion life, and we can help you with that, and we want to help you with that. Part of our plan is to get you into a small group, a connect group, a place that you can share life outside of the formal church setting throughout the week and that you can pray through the needs of the people in the community, the needs of the people in your connect group so that you can be that person that helps other people. And we want you to grow in this way too, in your giving so that you're extremely generous in your giving. I'm not talking about an amount. I'm talking about the heart. And so that you can be extremely generous in your time that you give to the people in your life and in the people in this church. Just like in Acts chapter 2, it talked about how people shared everything together. 
And finally, how, and how we as a congregation and as an individual reach out to the lost, the unchurched in this community and in your lives. That's our plan in a nutshell. Is it a perfect plan? No. Is it a plan that the leaders came up with through prayer? Yes. So pray for the plan. It's impossible for the plan to work. But what did, I, what did Nehemiah say at the very end? He says, our God will what? Fight for us. God bless the plan. And finally, pray for your part in the plan. The part that God has given you, it may seem impossible because we're asking a lot of you in the plan. But as Nehemiah said, what? Our God will fight for us. It's fun to plan. It's fun to have people in leadership positions. But none of it will be blessed unless our God is fighting for us. When you look at the cross and you see that God has not just fought for you, but gave his life for you, remember the words of Nehemiah, our God will fight for us. You can work in peace. You can live in peace. So pray for the people and the plans. Amen.